0: Russia's war on Ukraine has turned a lot of assumptions about the fundamental nature and trajectory of how wars are fought on its head. For one thing, Ukraine's strong defense has upended conventional wisdom about big powers being able to violate at will the sovereignty of little powers. Technology, in particular drones, has also leveled the playing field in unique ways. The emergence of cryptocurrency, both as a means to fund the war and the relief efforts, raises all kinds of interesting questions about the ability to enforce sanctions and bypass the traditional financing of wars with alternate means.
1: I actually see this war as being kind of the perfect laboratory for experimental warfare. And we've seen a lot of that happening with some of the drones and some of the unique tactics that the Ukrainians are using to defend their country. We're also seeing the implementation of other types of warfare, such as uh, weaponizing our economic system and and the various sanctions, and we're trying things that have never been tried in the past. And so this this kind of redefines the whole game of war.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. I'm delighted to welcome two great guests today, Thomas Fry and Trent Fowler, who have been giving a lot of thought to the future of war. Fry is the founder and executive director of the Da Vinci Institute and co-host of the Futurati podcast. Over the past decade, he has built an enormous following around the world based on his ability to develop accurate visions of the future and describe the opportunities ahead. Trent Fowler is a machine learning engineer, keynote speaker, and a co-host of the Futurati podcast. Thomas and Trent, welcome to Techtopia.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much.
0: So we all know that Afghanistan was ground zero for big countries, including the US and Russia, learning the hard way that You know, it's not always easy to subjugate smaller powers, and now Ukraine has come in and reinforced that lesson in a big way decades later with what some are describing as a near peer-to-peer war to defend its borders from Russia's greed. So, Thomas, starting with you, what are the key takeaways from Ukraine's ability to hold its own in terms of future wars and the balance of power between the big powers and the little powers?
1: I actually see this war as being kind of the perfect laboratory for experimental warfare. And we've seen a lot of that happening with some of the drones and some of the unique tactics that the Ukrainians are using to defend their country. We're also seeing the implementation of other types of warfare, such as uh, weaponizing our economic system and and the various sanctions, and we're trying things that have never been tried in the past. And so this, this kind of redefines the whole game of war, kind of the playing field. And we're much more aware of everything happening around the world And so it's not just two countries against each other. It ends up being virtually everybody on planet Earth has taken one side or the other in the Ukrainian war that changes kind of the scope and the nature of things as they play out.
0: Trent, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that Thomas is right. And I'd like to contextualize his comment about the weaponization of the financial system rather. So it's not the case that this is totally unprecedented, the booting of Russia off the SWIFT system and the freezing of the Russian central bank's foreign held dollars. But it is the first time that we've seen it on this scale and with a power that's quite like Russia. So in order to, to best understand why this is unprecedented, we have to go through a little bit of history and talk a bit about the the prevailing monetary order and the Bretton Woods system. So. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the victorious powers met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire to establish a global monetary system in which all the major currencies would be backed by the U.S. dollar and the U.S. dollar would in turn be backed by gold. And that prevailed until the early 1970s, when Richard Nixon fully and finally severed the tie between gold and the dollar. And in its place, he erected what's often called the petrodollar system and which is sometimes referred to as Bretton Woods, II. And the way that system worked is the OPEC countries would denominate their petroleum exports in dollars and in nothing else. And in exchange, they would get the protection of the American military, which would ensure the safe passage of their vessels and ensure that their domestic security was at least somewhat maintained. And what that ended up causing was a situation in which all these sovereign powers needed American dollars in order to buy their energy. There's there's no question of having an industrial society if you don't have energy. Wheat may be an important export, uh, but energy is a fundamental input to every industrial process. And so all of these central banks, all of these foreign powers needed to have a source of dollars. And so that created enormous dollar demand in the world. And just parenthetically, I would note that it's not clear that the petrodollar system actually favored the United States all that much because it's led to, for example, our maintaining a persistent structural trade deficit with more or less the entire world because there have to be a lot of dollars in the international markets for the petrodollar system to work at all. So that's led to a hollowing out of our manufacturing base and the progressive financialization of the American economy. But either way, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, the petrodollar system persisted until arguably March, 2020. And this is where you get what's called the Bretton Woods Three Thesis, which has been advanced by a number of very well-respected analysts who pay a lot of attention to macroeconomics. And the basic idea is that Before now, the dollar has been seen as largely a neutral and largely a risk-free asset, both because the United States is the greatest military on the face of the planet, and because there had never been a major example of us weaponizing our status as the de facto reserve currency for the world. I, I say there'd never been a major example because you can find some. Iran was kicked off SWIFT in, I think, 2012. But Russia's being kicked off SWIFT and the Russian Central Bank's reserves being freezed is far and away the greatest example of the weaponization of Western financial infrastructure that has ever been observed. And the reason that matters is because on our own podcast, the Futurality Podcast, we've been going back and forth for a while with different guests about whether or not Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency could ever be a reserve currency for the world. And Dr. George Selgin, whom we interviewed said no, because the dollar enjoys network effects that no other currency can. But I have to think that these foreign powers, China, Russia, North Korea, various pariah states have to be looking at the weaponization of the dollar and thinking to themselves that there needs to be an alternative to the SWIFT system and there needs to be an alternative to the dollar as a reserve currency. Now, those are not new ideas, but once you have an example like what happened with Russia earlier this year, you've now got a torch that's been lit for all of these autarchs and oligarchs to rally around in trying to build an alternative to the SWIFT system or trying to get some other reserve currency to compete with the dollar as a denomination for the world's financial transactions. So I think that you're going to start to see a weakening of the dollar's hegemony and cracks opening up in that edifice. And it's not clear that Bitcoin will be what makes it through, but I think something will make it through and it's at least plausible that it would be a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. So this will have massive ramifications.
0: And Thomas, we talked yesterday a little bit about, you know, you've had an early glimpse into the power of the alternate currencies, even before cryptocurrencies, as we now know it today, were created. And now you've got cryptocurrency being used in this war on Ukraine by Russia and Ukraine's response in a number of different ways. And you know, in terms of both potentially evading sanctions, we don't know, but also in the relief efforts, but also potentially to fund the war efforts. Knowing what you know about the power of the programmable currencies in the old days, and cryptocurrencies as they're now called, and the weaponization of the financial system as you so well put it with sanctions, how do you see the future of war evolving in this area?
1: That's a great super complicated question because it's going to go off in lots of different directions. Let me say first that the internet has given us the power to be much more aware of everything going on in the world than ever in the past. And so we we just know things and they're much clearer to us. We're capturing things with videos and photographs and and, uh, audio recordings, and we're doing things in ways that uh, have given us proofs and traces of proofs in the world around us. And so we're, we're seeing what works and what doesn't work. And some of the videos that we've seen of, as an example of the dropping these little bombs from drones, the hand grenades from drones into cars that are like three or four hundred feet below them and, and watching them explode. That's something that we we get evidence of something actually working that's a relatively an inexpensive weapon that was never possible in the past. So, as we see the the things happening with the various sanctions, and I should mention that I don't like the idea of imposing all these sanctions on the oligarchs because, it becomes a war on the rich people that really have very little to do with how, how the country runs and operates. Most of these oligarchs, it seems, have actually left the country and live live elsewhere because why would you want to live in Russia? It's not the fun capital of the world by any stretch. So we're, we're seeing these people fleeing the country and they're f- floating around in their yachts around the world, and, and then all of a sudden we're trying to seize all these shots. And then once we get them seized, then we have no idea of how to pay for that seizure and what to do with them after we have them. So that, I I think, is kind of a rather crude way of doing things. And so it almost sounds like we've stopped doing that because it raises many more questions than it has answers for. If we look for other experimental things that are, are going on, Any ideas that come up, we can implement them real rapidly. The idea of of being able to impose some sort of a cryptocurrency and one of the problems with cryptocurrencies is that when you have an open blockchain it's it's actually visible to the world as to what the transactions are that are happening on it and so having something like a monero or one of the other private cryptos that becomes a a much more viable way of kind of weaponizing things and passing money to an underground group that normally you couldn't get money to So I I do think that we're going to start seeing many more of these experiments. I don't think we're hearing about half of the ones that are actually taking place right now.
0: They're calling the Russian invasion the first crypto war, and I guess there are a lot of different implications for how that's going to emerge, both in terms of use of mainstream currency like Bitcoin, but also the privacy coins, as you know, you pointed out, Monero and others. What are some of the other ways that we're going to see crypto emerge as a, I don't know if it's a weapon of war, if it's a funding of war, if it's a salve to the war, I don't know. What are all the various ways in which you're going to see it emerge?
2: As you mentioned, the invasion of Ukraine is being called the first crypto war. I think that the role that cryptocurrencies are playing in the conflict has been somewhat exaggerated, but I do think it's a harbinger of things to come. And there's two sides to it, just as there are two sides in the conflict. On the Russian side, you see attempts by various oligarchs to evade sanctions by funneling their fiat currencies through cryptocurrencies. And on the other side, on the Ukrainian side, you see public addresses that are controlled by the Ukrainian government accepting donations of cryptocurrencies in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a couple of others as well. Both of those are not playing such a huge role in the conflict today, but they absolutely will going forward. So for the most part, we don't think that the oligarchs are successfully laundering all that much money on the blockchain because as Thomas mentioned, it's a public immutable ledger. And so if somebody were trying to move a billion dollars onto Bitcoin and through the network and launder it somehow, it would stick out like a sore thumb. Partially because of that fact, and partially because of the fact that I think the sanctions took the oligarchs by surprise, they have fumbled around in trying to launder their funds. But I don't think that's a mistake oligarchs will make in the future, or autarchs will make in the future. I think that. If Saudi Arabia or China decide that they want to invade a neighboring country, I think they will, they will set the stage far in advance of that insofar as they want to use cryptocurrencies to evade sanctions. And they'll be much better prepared. So they'll be able to move it in smaller amounts, move it through channels they've already established, and launder it far more effectively. So the, the oligarchs probably are not going to be able to launder much of their money or protect much of their assets through cryptocurrencies, but in the future they will. And as, as Bitcoin grows and there's far higher transaction volumes and far more liquidity moving through the blockchain, it will be much easier to hide a million dollars here and a million dollars there. It won't stick out as much. So in the future, I think that you're going to see a lot more of that. And I also agree with Thomas that there would be an incentive to look into cryptocurrencies which have stronger default privacy guarantees like Monero and Zcash, which use things like zero-knowledge proofs to hide transaction amounts and who's on either side of the transactions. And I also think there's a fascinating dimension here insofar as people are, are donating cryptocurrencies to the Ukrainian war effort. Again, there's something like $100 million or $150 million that have been donated so far, which is not a trivial amount, but it's also not what you would need to finance a war. But going forward, we could see guerrilla groups fighting against you know, oppressive socialist regimes or something like that being funded in a sort of crowdsourced way and in a way that's uncensorable and in a way that's unstoppable. And it raises these interesting questions. So if I donate $1,000 to a rebel group and they commit war crimes, am I culpable for any of that? Like, How do you assign responsibility? How do you deal with non-combatants funding a sovereign's conflict? I don't have answers to it, but I do think it's an in- interesting question and it's one that we're going to see crop up in conflicts in the future.
0: Yeah, and I think there are two other aspects of crypto as well. One is, you know, with these millions of refugees having to flee the country, flee borders and leave all of their savings behind. Crypto actually could be a great way for them, you know, to be able to just memorize their wallet address in their mind and be able to cross the border without having cash, without having, you know, access to their bank accounts, but eventually being able to leverage that crypto and convert it into a fiat uh, once they're able to get refuge, I think is a really interesting. Potential use case for cryptocurrency in protecting the finances of people in these countries that have no, you know, security. And I think that the other thing also is even in Russia, right? These sanctions, as Thomas has mentioned, and as you have talked about, Trent, it's a weaponization of the financial system, and maybe it hurts the the oligarchs a little bit, but it also actually hurts average Russians, right? Because. What did Putin do? He put a clamp on the ability of people to get withdrawals, You know, people's pension checks. Even people living in the US couldn't get their pension checks from Russia. So I imagine that crypto might potentially become an increasing way to protect people, their savings and things like that against sort of autocratic decision making.
2: That was one of the prime use cases that the original architects of Bitcoin had in mind it was exactly this sort of thing. And one thing that we've gotten from this war, if it's a silver lining, albeit a small one, is the fact that you've got many, many heartwarming stories of people who are escaping with their 12 word seed phrase in their mind and thereby having access to most of their net worth. Maybe they lost their house, but it's not as though their bank went up in flames and they have literally nothing left. They can get out, they can access Bitcoin somehow and then still have whatever net worth they had put away in it as a result. So we're seeing many stories of this kind coming out of the conflict and it warms my heart to see it. And then at a sort of deeper level than that, you're exactly right, that protecting people's savings indefinitely into the future with a deflationary currency that can't be inflated away like Bitcoin was arguably the use case that Satoshi Nakamoto had in mind when he he established Bitcoin and built the network. So I think that's absolutely true. And I really hope in a period of increasing inflation and increasing blowout of budgets and deficits by malfeasant governments across the world, something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin or a successor, hopefully will provide just such a vehicle for protecting and preserving savings into the future.
1: Yeah, I should mention that the way that rich families protect their wealth is through their family office. And the family office has professional people working in that operation and they're all undergoing lots of training right now to actually counter lots of moves and measures that would, would try to confiscate the money of the family. So they will be much more resilient in the future as various sanctions or things like that would be imposed. Now, I should mention too that as we weaponize against wars in other countries, we could also reduce it down to singling out individual terrorists or individual people and declaring war on an individual, kind of like Osama bin Laden. When you declare war on an individual, then you can search the world and try to isolate individual bank accounts and assets declare war on that individual and whatever it takes to put them out of business. That takes the idea of war to an entirely different level. And a lot of the effort in the Ukrainian war has been to isolate the assets of Vladimir Putin and actually kind of relieve him of some of his wealth. As Elon Musk said, that Vladimir Putin is the richest guy in the world. And I've heard stories of that uh, when I was over in Russia a couple of years ago. He has ways of extracting money from deals so that it goes to him personally. So we will very likely see this changing nature of war as we move forward. And lots of experiments that we haven't tried in the past. So the nature of war is changing and so are the tools of war.
0: And even without active conflict, you know, in countries like Venezuela, for instance, right, the, the cryptocurrency is being used the way it was intended to, I suppose, in protecting average people. It's a hedge against corruption and a protection against corruption. And so, Thomas, uh, in terms of your understanding of the future of money, it seems like there are all kinds of ways in which cryptocurrency is just going to be able to level the playing field to prevent corrupt regimes, corrupt individuals, from just simply destroying the livelihoods and retirement accounts of of average people.
1: Yeah, we're still really early on in the whole crypto age with Bitcoin being uh, unleashed in 2009, we're in our 13th year of working our way through this. And so this is still the uh, Egyptian sundial stage of advancement. We have a long ways to go and a long ways to add details and resilience to this whole, these systems that we're trying to create. One of the failures, I think, of of Bitcoin, and I've brought this up to some of our guests that we've had on the Futurati podcast, is this idea that if a Bitcoin is lost, that it's not recoverable. And so as an example, if somebody was storing their Bitcoin in a cold wallet like many people in the past, they would put cash in a mattress and s- save it for later. Well, they might actually store their cold wallet in a mattress. If somebody dies, then and it's it's stored in some secret place. Nobody knows where it is. And they certainly don't know what the passwords are to get access to it. Then those those Bitcoin end up being non-recoverable. And over the next thousand years, as an example, it's entirely possible that all of the Bitcoins will have evaporated, kind of like water in the open air. And so unless we have some sort of recoverable system, I'm not sure how how Bitcoin can be kind of the long-term durable cryptocurrency that we need moving forward.
0: I want to talk about another aspect of weaponizing crypto, and that is with respect to these ransomware attacks and how they're being used by uh, nation states, rogue nations like North Korea. Uh, As you both know, this past April, the FBI disclosed that the theft of $615 million from Axie Infinity, the the play-to-earn game, actually came because of the group Lazarus, which has direct ties to the government of North Korea. And this was the largest decentralized finance hack and the second largest crypto hack in history. Not only that, you know, this attack took place just weeks after President Biden had released an ex- a big executive order authorizing this, quote, whole of federal government approach to de-risking digital assets. And then, of course, Lazarus comes in and just steals $615 million and walks away with that money. And that's just one ransomware attack, right? And we all know that there have been hundreds of millions of dollars missing through these attacks. So how will crypto shape the the geopolitical struggles on a global scale when you have these eye-popping sums of money going to rogue actors like North Korea, and you know that that money is being used to create weapons of mass destruction, to create weapons that could be used against the United States and its allies?
2: There are several interesting aspects to that. So on the one hand, I, I've always found it fascinating that garrison states like North Korea, are so incompetent along certain dimensions, but then profoundly competent along other dimensions. So just as an interesting anecdote, I've heard the story that the North Korean government produced counterfeit U.S. dollars, which were only discovered because they were actually too good. So the dollars that are in circulation have these tiny little errors that you have to really know what you're looking for in order to see, and their dollars had none of those errors. Their dollars were too perfect. And so that's how they discovered that the North Korean government had somehow or another produced these almost inconceivably good counterfeits, you know, and yet most of the country doesn't have any electricity. So I just find that really interesting that you've got the sort of concentration of skills in uh, criminal activities. But it's true that the Lazarus Group is either working on behalf of the North Korean government or is directly controlled by the North Korean government. And they have perpetuated a number of pretty large cryptocurrency heists, Uh, one of the biggest of which was the hack of the Ronin Bridge, which underlies Axie Infinity. And I've co-written a piece with Abra's head of research, Mike Mazels, which should be published this month, I think, which talks a little bit about bridge security and that hack in particular. And one of the troubling aspects of that is that it's believed that the North Korean government is using the stolen crypto to finance the development of ICBMs and nuclear weapons of various kinds. So their weapons program is in part being funded by these stolen crypto assets. But it's also interesting that as a result, the North Korean government is really badly exposed to swings in crypto prices. So with the recent massive price correction and Bitcoin being under $20,000 a coin for the first time in quite some time, the value of these ill-gotten gains that the Lazarus Group has absconded with on behalf of the North Korean government is now much smaller than it once was. And I've seen uh, Chainalysis, which is a blockchain analytics company, monitors something like 49 wallets that are believed to be controlled by this this terrorist group. And they say that the correction has been something like the value going from $600 million down to like $170 million, some massive loss of value. So it's not clear if Lazarus is going to hodl through this correction or if they're just going to have to go ahead and, and try to fund ballistic missiles with a quarter of the value that they had before but it's it's fascinating that they are also exposed in a major way to the volatility that's inherent to the crypto market. So I would say that North Korea is one group to look at because it's not that they're on a Bitcoin standard exactly, but they do have a lot of Bitcoin, they do have a lot of crypto, and they're using it to finance their weapons program. And then El Salvador famously uses Bitcoin as legal tender. So we've got a couple of different countries, El Salvador, North Korea, and the Central African Republic on different places in the development scale, different places in the democratic scale, and all of which are using crypto in pretty major ways. So it should give us a sort of interesting lens into how this technology plays out with respect to geopolitics and also the domestic financing of things like weapons development.
0: And Thomas, in terms of other countries, China obviously is developing its own digital currency. There is quite a bit of concern that part of that, if not a large part of that effort, is in order to try to destabilize the U.S. dollar, but also to try to Align African countries, other parts of the world with China and away from the United States. Have you been studying this and what do you make of it?
1: Yeah, China's got a massive manufacturing base. But they're going through this uh, extreme COVID approach to uh, uh, curing COVID in their country. They're still, everybody's locked down in are They really have limited movement and ability to do things over there. So China has imposed way harsher restrictions than virtually any other country. At the same time, China's got this run on their banks happening right now, and they're they're trying to keep a lid on it. They don't want word to get out, but there's, there's a whole lot of frustrated people unable to get their cash out of the banks over in China. So we have that as kind of a backdrop playing out as to how they're dealing with the rest of the world. Now, they would very much like to just go over and take over Taiwan, but They're seeing what's happening in the Ukraine, and they're kind of second-guessing their plans to to move against Taiwan. We'll see if that continues to hold moving forward. The Chinese have, have tried to kick out all of the crypto miners. Now, there's still some in China, but much fewer than there were. And these people just left with all their equipment. They went to another country, set up shop, and were mining Bitcoin and other cryptos virtually overnight and so we're gonna have to wait and see how all this plays out as to who the true genius was in the background on all this thinking we're starting to see lots of other countries shooting rockets into space oh the chinese are basically declared war on starlink satellites And so they don't want any of the Starlink satellites spying on China, Chinese territories. And so we might actually have some wars taking place up in space as well. The idea of actually having a satellite with a laser on it in space that could actually shoot a laser towards Earth and actually take out a single individual, that represents a quantum leap forward in the whole kind of art of war that you can just take out that one individual, that seems like a, a radical departure from the way we currently think about warfare.
0: Fascinating. And do you think that is likely to happen sometime in the future?
1: Yeah, I actually do. I don't think it's that long from now either, certainly within the next 20 years. We're we're very close on all this. The, the ability now that SpaceX has for shooting up literally a launch every week, hundreds of satellites going up into space is quite remarkable. We're actually seeing countries like India shooting up rockets and and the UK and Japan is shooting up rockets and Korea. We're seeing space become very crowded And there's other issues associated with that. Even though space is a big area, we have more and more space junk accumulating in space. And that's where we can run into lots of problems.
0: Yes, but this idea of space wars no longer seems a far-fetched idea from the picture that you are painting.
1: Countries have a lot of assets up in space. So being able to shoot down a single asset, a single satellite, could have huge ramifications. Now, in Elon Musk's case, where he's trying to get up 30,000 satellites to be all part of his Starlink network, that's a whole other scale of undertaking to try to get rid of that many satellites. There's a lot of them up there. But the whole space junk problem, though, could eliminate lots of them on its own. So we're going to have to see how all that plays out.
0: You know, going back to Starlink and to Ukraine, you also saw that Zelensky directly made a plea to Elon Musk to send over some satellites so that Ukraine didn't lose Internet connectivity, which Musk then did. And so you sort of saw a new kind of different type of defensive maneuver taking place with respect to protecting the Internet so that the Ukrainian military could continue its operations and also saw a huge... I think very creative use by the Ukrainians in particular of social media and social media influencers and they were also organically social media influencers on the ground calling out to citizen soldiers in other countries to come join them. You also saw on the technology front, use of facial recognition technology to identify bodies, all kinds of really creative things that Ukraine was doing and is doing in the scope of fighting its war. Uh, What do you make of some of these things, Trent? And where do you think this is all going in the war of the future?
2: Absolutely, so these are all variations on the dynamic I referenced earlier, where you've got citizens of foreign countries who are directly crowdfunding the war effort of a foreign power. So Elon Musk is a citizen of the United States. He has really no ties to Ukraine at all, but he responded to a direct plea by President Zelensky to put Starlink at his service so that they could keep comms and ops up and running. And to be clear, I fully support what he did. And I, I think that's great, but it, but it is sort of interesting. It's just a private citizen from another country with no direct tie and, and no skin in the game of this conflict intervening on behalf of one of the combatants. I suspect that just in a more globalized world and in a more distributed world, you will see more and more of those sorts of things. You could see volunteer armies coming together from social media outreach campaigns. You could see obviously a lot more crowdfunding through cryptocurrency channels or similar sorts of things and weapon systems as well. To go back to some of what Thomas was saying about space-based warfare, you kind of got two dimensions to this. You've got the actual war in space and then you've got terrestrial wars, which are fought from space. And those are two different things. And I would just note that there are a number of different, pretty compelling proposals for building systems that can do things like harness solar power in space and beam it back to the earth in the form of something like microwaves or radio waves. If you can do something like that, it's a short jump to making that a kinetic weapon. And if you've got satellites in space with resolution capable of reading license plates, you can obviously do some pretty good targeting. And if you've got really cutting edge facial recognition, there's no reason to think that you couldn't just, you know, nuke a single person from space using a, a satellite. And I I suspect that that day is is not too far away either. So between decentralized blockchain-based technologies like crypto allowing for crowdfunding, between technologies like Starlink allowing for the maintenance of internet connectivity even during a really brutal conflict between satellites that are able to recognize people from space and kill them, I think unfortunately we're gonna live in even more interesting times in the future.
0: Thomas, what do you make of uh, where we're going with the future of war based on this conversation?
1: It puts a whole lot more tools at our disposal. That, I think, is fundamentally the key piece of this. And then also, I'll I'll just mention this this whole idea of, of being able to create an infrared signature of an individual, getting very precise with infrared scanners. If you're able to use a satellite and actually get a an infrared signature of an individual. Let me point out how difficult that is, because you have to differentiate this individual from another individual. You have to differentiate this person from a cow or from a dog or from some other animal. So once we're able to do that, this this is like a a godlike surveillance thing, so we know where every individual is at any given moment on planet Earth total invasion of privacy, naturally, Uh, then we know where every person goes at any time. We could theoretically uh, record all this information about every individual movement on uh, people of planet Earth if we get to a point where we're actually sanctioning people. I mean, we're we're declaring war against this individual. We put them on the terrorist watch list. We want to do something about them. This becomes a totally different game because people can easily then take out their political opponents and whoever's in power then has superpowers over everybody else. And that kind of history has shown us that that all kind of goes to people's heads. And so they, they start abusing their position rather quickly after they, they get a sense as to how much power they have in their own hands.
0: Two of the takeaways i'm getting from this conversation one is sort of this decentralization of war because people that aren't you know ukrainian you could be elon musk but you could participate in this war by sending over Starlink. So that kind of a decentralization, splintering of identity in a weird way, and participation in war, and also these citizen soldiers who are just getting on a plane and coming to fight. So that that kind of a splintering decentralization of effort. The second thing I get from Thomas from what you're saying is that, that kind of laser beam, you know, kill one person, one bullet, ends a war kind of technology is both incredibly expensive, but also in the final analysis, potentially really, really cheap because you're not killing millions and millions of people. And in the case of Ukraine now, when they're talking about, I think, about $750 billion to rebuild the country because Russia has basically turned it into rubble. It just seems like potentially incredibly expensive technology could prevent incredibly uh, expensive wars.
1: Yeah, if you actually have seen the Black Mirror episode called Metalhead that deals with robotic dogs. It's really quite a compelling episode. I I highly encourage people to watch that. But if you think about rather than actually sending soldiers into war and actually sending robotic dogs or robotic humans into, into battle, what an imbalance that would be is snipers are able to take out a robot, but they're not able to take out an actual human and that we have a limitless number of robots that we can throw into a battlefield. That is such a game changer. We don't even know how to think our way through that one just yet.
0: Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I'd love to get some final closing thoughts from you all on what you are going to be looking for and looking at in coming months as this war in Ukraine just keeps dragging on and with no end in sight. Uh, Trent, I'll start with you.
2: Absolutely. So un, I stated earlier that I think crypto will not play a hugely outsized role in this conflict, but I think there will be lessons from it that people will take with them to future conflicts and on both sides, both in terms of the aggressors and in terms of the defenders. So I think that in the future, you will see you know more pleas uh, made by heads of state uh, to private actors like SpaceX to help them maintain internet connectivity during times of war. I think that you will also see crypto begin to take a larger role in conflicts going forward. It, it, you will see more people escape with all their assets as a seed phrase in their head. You will see more people trying to launder launder money and escape sanctions using cryptocurrencies, possibly str- ones with stronger privacy guarantees. And I also think that you'll probably see the day in which some kind of... Uh, Crowdsourced force is raised via social media outreach. I mean, you see that with Muslim fighting forces all over the world. People become rattle- radicalized in a country like Sweden and travel all the way around the world to fight in a conflict, which otherwise has nothing to do with them, solely because of the ideology underlying it, one that they endorse. I think you'll see more and more of that happening. and. I suppose that I will just be looking for how all this plays out in the Ukrainian conflict, how people talk about it and conceptualize it, and then how that redounds in the next conflicts going forward.
0: Thomas.
1: Entering into this war, a lot of people had actually gone down the path of thinking that we will never see a heavy metal war again, where you're sending in lots of iron tanks and troop carriers and that sort of thing into a battlefront but that's exactly what happened in the Ukraine war we found out real quickly how messed up that is and how these these tanks and all these uh, troop carriers and all of couldn't navigate the mud in the Ukraine there's a lot of people saying that this is the actual first full scale cyber war so we have the cyber war going on but Russia really hasn't unleashed their full cyber capabilities yet, and we're, we're confused as to why they haven't done that. And so this seems to be such a trivial goal on Putin's part to land a, a warm water port. It is playing out in so many other interesting ways as other countries weigh in and they start carving backroom deals between like Russia and China, between India and China and India and Russia, as the demand for energy that Russia has, that is playing out in such interesting ways as well. We've never really gotten a feel for kind of the economics of war playing out in the back room deals in the past, and now we're starting to see that come to light. So this is is going off in lots of interesting directions that Nobody quite anticipated, and my sense is, is that all the, the people at West Point are rewriting the, the rules for the game of war, and they're starting to teach classes that are totally different than ever in the past.
0: You made such a really interesting point on the cyber warfare aspect as to the fact that Putin really hasn't unleashed very significant cybersecurity warfare capabilities. But at the same time, going back to sort of this democratization of war, the splintering of identities, you see cyber warriors from the U.S. and other countries actually attacking Russia's cyber wall in order to get information to the Russian people about really how the war is actually taking place to break through the propaganda that Putin is imposing by you know, cutting them off from the outside world and internet websites and things like that. So I think probably in, in future wars, you're going to see more of that kind of cyber warfare taking place, not just at the state level, but from the individual level as well by citizen soldiers who decide that they want to change the outcome of the war?
2: There's a dimension we really haven't gotten into yet, but we briefly talked about ransomware earlier. And one of the interesting things about the Russia, Russia-Ukraine Russia conflict is that in the immediate aftermath, the ransomware group Conti, it's not thought that it's operated by the Russian government, but it, it colludes with the Russian government and it's a Russian-based ransomware organization, publicly stated that they would attack any foreign power that pursued reprisals against the Russian state. And they, they've since walked that back, not much came of that, but it's still pretty remarkable that this hacker group had the boldness to issue a proclamation like that and, and basically say, we will go to war with you uh, on behalf of Russia in recent weeks they've more or less crippled the Costa Rican government and so much so that the the president of the Costa Rican government has said that they're they're effectively in a state of war with this ransomware group now ransomware groups change a lot conti kind of disbanded not that long ago so they've kind of fractured but i agree with thomas that the cyber component of warfare will grow and it will not necessarily be in the ways you'd expect it won't just be a north korean hacker group operated directly by the government. It may be groups inside the country that are sympathetic to the government, but operating independently as as effectively private entities, attacking infrastructure in a foreign country, maybe with a tacit endorsement of the state, but not as actual combatants themselves. And so it will contribute to this this shattering, this kind of smearing of warfare and the dissolution of boundaries between combatants and citizens and collateral damage. And it's probably just going to be really messy, I think.
0: That's a good summation, uh, a very messy and fascinating evolution of the future of war. And there's so much to talk about. We'll have to have you back on to continue this conversation. Uh, Trent and Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today for this fascinating discussion on the future of war and the role that cryptocurrency is likely to play. It's really, really great to have you both on.
1: That's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks, Chitra.
0: Thomas Fry is the founder and executive director of the Da Vinci Institute and co-host of the Futurati podcast. Over the past decade, Fry has built an enormous following around the world based on his ability to develop accurate visions of the future and describe the opportunities ahead. Trent Fowler is a machine learning engineer, keynote speaker and co-host of the Futurati podcast. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Tectopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Corr, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.